Thanks, Jack. Uh, evening, everybody. You'll need this sheet, and uh, you'll be really pleased to hear that there are, I think, some more diagrams coming. And uh, just while I'm sort of faffing around here, it might be good just to grab a Bible and open it at Hebrews 9 as well. So Hebrews 9 is where we want to be, and um, that's pretty much where we're going to uh, remain. And um, over this series, we've been, we've been sort of building up a, a picture of uh, a biblical model of church. And you'll remember that the key concept is the gathering. Um, remember Horsey Church? It's such a basic idea that even a three-year-old can look at a, gr- a group of toy churches, uh, sorry, <laughs> toy horses, and um, because they are gathered in one place and not sort of scattered about the fields, they can see that is the, the essence of church, the nature of church. So those horses weren't church because they're in a funny-shaped building. Uh, they weren't church because they were meeting on a Sunday morning. They weren't church because they were singing. These are, these are funny pictures, aren't they? We, we, you know, if you want a funny picture, then horsey church. Um, imagine them all in the funny building singing. Um, but they weren't church because of any of those things. They were church because they were gathered. Now, that is a simple concept, isn't it? Gathering a group of people is church. It's a simple enough concept that even a three-year-old can get it. The only complication, the difficult part, the only difficult part of this doctrine is that that one gathering has two expressions, one in heaven and the other on earth. But they're the same thing. They're the same gathering. So the heavenly gathering is the complete church, the gathering of all God's people, past and present, alive and dead, around the throne of Christ in heaven, but it's expressed in earthly, earthly local churches. And by the way, when we say local, we don't just mean your nearest church, but located on earth. So that model of church is captured in our definition. So I'm just going to give you a moment to fill in those blanks um, and uh, see if you can uh, sort of remember where we we got to. Just take 20 seconds to fill in uh, that, that definition. Some people have been very clever and already done it. So you should have God is gathering a people to be with him in eternity that... Heavenly gathering is now seen in the earthly yeah, or ordinary uh, local church. Either will do. Give yourselves a big pat on the back if you got that right. However, that, so that's the model that I've been uh, trying to get across and we've been trying to work out. But not everybody holds this view of church. And sometimes you get really clear. The way to get really clear on something is look at the alternatives And so this week, we're going to think about what is really an alternative way of thinking about church. It's a different way of thinking. And I'll tell you right from the start, I think it's wrong. But thinking about it will help us to get even clearer about what the Bible does say. And this is the worship model of church. See, all over the world, uh, wherever you go and there are Christians, the language of worship seems to be used to describe what goes on at church meetings, meetings or services. So you might ask somebody, where do you worship? And you immediately know they're asking you which church you belong to. 
Someone might say in a Christian meeting, we're now going to have a time of worship. And you immediately know they're talking about a time of standing up to sing and sometimes particular songs. Or as I was told at a Christian meeting, let's stop worshipping now. And although my sort of theological pedantry wanted to say, do you mean we're going to give up on God? We're going to become atheists or something? I knew what they meant. They meant we're going to stop singing and sit down and listen to the Bible or something else. So this worship model of church that attaches to the church meeting, to the church gathering, that word worship and all the concepts that go with it, I want to suggest is a different model and is leading us to a different model to the one that I've been trying to teach from the Bible. It's a different way of thinking. I don't want to try and convince you that this is a misunderstanding and a misreading of the Bible and it has various consequences for how we think about church and, of course, how we think about worship and, therefore, how we think about our relationship with God. Now, as with a lot of errors in Bible thinking, it, it begins with one big error, and that is a misreading between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here's a, a picture of the, of the mistake. I've given you two boxes. So the first box, this is for the mistake. The second box is for the right one. So don't ruin your second box too quickly. So the first picture goes like this. Here is the Old Covenant uh, temple. Uh, the Old Covenant way of worshipping Yahweh, the Lord, was rightly and properly done in the temple. Here is the meeting place for God's people. It was rightly a designated place of worship. So if you're in the Old Covenant, you're in the temple, where do you worship? The answer is, I worship in the temple at Jerusalem. Who is the worship leader? Well, the priest is the worship leader, the mediator between man and God. There are right and wrong ways of worshipping. And so, in the Old Covenant temple, there is a restriction of time and place and person and means. Now, the mistake is this. To transfer that theology directly to the New Testament church. To think, actually, okay, so in the Old Testament we have a temple, and in the New Testament we have a church. And so various elements of that theology transfer from temple to church. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, if you go into certain church buildings, you will find a kind of a table at the front. Um, sometimes it's just a wooden table, sometimes it's a more ornate table. And that table is sometimes called a table, but in some church traditions it's called an altar. Now, what is an altar for? Well, in the Old Testament temple, the altar is where you sacrifice animals on. Another example is you've got a person, a, ma a kind of a, a man, a, an office holder. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's a priest. And some churches call their church leaders priests. There you've got a transfer from the temple to the church. I went to visit a church once, and uh, on the outside of the building, there was a sort of church hall where people had coffee, and you walked across into the kind of what we would call the chapel. And on the outside, there was a label that said, Welcome to the sanctuary. Sanctuary is, in the Old Testament language, a place where you go and meet with God. And here is another kind of transfer from Old Covenant to New Covenant. One more example is the word service. So we use the word so church service, meaning the meeting that happens in the church building. But service is actually a priestly word, because priests serve in the sanctuary committing sacrifices. 
So what is the problem with this? Well, what is the most essential rule in relating the Old Testament to the New Testament? Have a look at Luke 24, 25, and then we'll come back to the second box in a moment. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The most essential rule in relating the Old Testament to the New Testament is to remember that everything has been fulfilled in Christ. All of the Old Testament categories that have been set up to teach us how we relate to God are, we are told, shadows that help us to understand Christ. So, Colossians 2.17, here, uh, uh, sorry, um, for these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Or, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Now, if you want to know more about that, ask one of the ministry trainees, because we've been doing this in, in, in a training course uh, just last week, thinking very, very carefully about how to relate the Old Testament to the New Testament. They'll, be, they'll tell you a lot more about that. Now, if the Old Testament realities are shadows and, the, in a, and those shadows are fulfilled in Christ, then you can see the mistake people are making. So here is the right way to think about the temple. Instead of taking the temple directly to the church, everything the temple stood for must be fulfilled in Christ. That's the huge mistake. And then, having seen the fulfillment in Christ, we can then work out uh, the implications for the church. Okay, so simple mistake, simple schoolboy error of not taking everything in the Old Testament through Christ. There are many, many ways that this will apply and will help us uh, to get right uh, theology. So if you've got your Bible open at Hebrews chapter 9, let's see this in action then. So what I'm going to do is just kind of just see how that actually uh, does happen in the New Testament as it handles uh, the evidence and the, the Old Testament uh, scriptures about the temples. So if you turn over the page, there's two simple points. Worship then and worship now. Worship then, first of all. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. An earthly sanctuary simply means a place where people can go and meet with God. God is in heaven, but he set up an earthly sanctuary where you can go and meet with God. What did that look like? Well, verse 2, a tabernacle. It looked like a tent. It was a tent. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room with the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So those few verses sort of give us a snapshot of what the temple was really about. And the end of verse 5 tells us there's much more he could say, but this is the, these are the basics. 
the temple and the tabernacle, and you remember that the, the tabernacle was the tent, the temple was the sort of the, the stone version of the same thing, but they're basically the same thing, theologically speaking. It was all about access to God. Going to a place on earth, special building, where you can go and worship God and have access to him. But notice something, there's a problem. There's a sort of ambiguity arises in the temple and tabernacle in the Old Testament. This specialness of the place is actually its problem as well. So have a look at verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So the temple and tabernacle were about access to God, but in the most inaccessible way imaginable. With this whole system of priests and rituals and rules and sacrifices. So yes, you could go to a special place and worship God, but you couldn't really. Only the priests could go, and only on that special day, and only with a whole load of animal sacrifices. So there is a tension or ambiguity about the place. This is the place of worship, but really you're not welcome. You're not able to access God. You only do it through the priests and through the sacrifices. So you know how uh, some church buildings have these kind of cheesy signs outside? We are open on Sundays. I quite like that one. Um, this is a CH-CH, what's missing? You are. Um, or if you don't like the way you were born, be born again. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Um, don't worry, we're not going to get any of those signs up outside our new church building. Um, and they're doing their best, aren't they, to welcome people in. But what would you write if you were doing the sign for the, for the temple? Worship God here. But God doesn't really dwell in buildings. Um, step inside for mercy. Step inside the wrong way and you die. And I think this, this one also would have to be written, this house is the house of God, but God has issued a demolition order because the temple was only ever a temporary thing. And it was destroyed, wasn't it, before the end of the Old Testament. So the temple didn't provide the solution. It provided an unresolved tension. The temple is the one place on earth where you really can go and worship God, but you can't go and worship God unless you go through the priests, through the sacrifices, through all the conditions. And therefore, look at what the writer says in verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. There's the ambiguity. A religious system given by God for human beings to worship God on earth did not deliver the goods, did not make access with God possible. The entire thing was actually a huge visual aid to make it clear what really needed to happen was still coming. Look at verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations 
applying until the time of the new order. Well, let's look at that new order then in 11 to 28, worship now. The point of this part of Hebrews, remember, is that something big has happened to change the old order to the new, and it's there on the picture. Jesus has come. He has stepped in. He is the, the pivot between the old covenant and the new covenant. He is the big revolution that changes everything. He is the reality to which the shadows were pointing. So the temple was all about worship. It was the place where worship happened. But it happened with all those massive qualifications. So when Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the shadow, it is no surprise that he fulfills, that is, he completes all of those shadows in himself. And it begins with his own sacrifice. Look at verse 11. When Jesus came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Can you see how in his death on the cross, Jesus has actually fulfilled and therefore has destroyed the temple and all it stood for. Do you remember how people accused him of saying he was going to destroy the temple? And there was a sort of play on words going on there, because that's exactly what he was going to do. He destroyed the need for the temple and the tabernacle worship by becoming the temple himself. And in the process, he becomes the priest, the mediator, the sacrifice, the worshipper, he does the whole package. Verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. And I want us to kind of just really let that sink in and, and understand what it's saying. It's saying something really quite stark and, and spectacular, perhaps more than we're used to thinking about. See, it might not be a surprise to know that Jesus has fulfilled the priesthood. We, we're used to speaking of Jesus as the great high priest. People in our church tradition don't tend to call church leaders priests, do, do they? And we don't have an altar in church. We know that he's fulfilled the sacrifice. We know that we don't come to church dragging a little lamb along to be slaughtered. We, 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 we get that. But notice in those verses I just read that Jesus has fulfilled the entire package of the Old Testament worship. He is, in fact, the new temple. He's the place we go to worship. And as priest, he is the one true worshiper as well. He worships God on our behalf perfectly. He has fulfilled everything the Old Testament set up in the temple and destroyed it, fulfilled it, completed it. And therefore, 
There is now no need for a temple, for a holy place, for a priesthood, for a sacrifice, for worship under those conditions. Jesus in his death on the cross has abolished religion. And that is why the church is not a replacement for the temple. It is Jesus who replaces the temple. It was pointing to him all the time. Well, let's uh, think it through. Here are four implications of this. Just to try and kind of drum this in. We've seen, seen it in the, in, the, in the text. Let's just kind of think it through and work out some implications. First, Jesus has fulfilled all the Old Testament worship demands. In the Old Covenant, worship of God was rightly and properly done in the temple. It really was. It was God's appointed meeting place. There was a designated way of doing things. You could worship rightly or you could worship wrongly. There was a designated person, the priest, the mediator. So in the Old Covenant, worship of God was restricted to a particular time, place and persons. Now all of that is true in Jesus Christ. He is the temple. In him we we come to the presence of God. He is the priesthood. It is through his work we are reconciled to God. He is the sacrifice. It is through him we are cleansed. And he is the one true worshipper who in living a life of total obedience has fulfilled Israel's mandate to worship God on our behalf. And so isn't it no surprise that that great move has changed the way we speak of worship. To speak of worship now as a place and an event and a building is actually to go back to the Old Testament language. That's the first thing. Second implication is the direction of worship has moved from the temple to Jesus, not from the temple to church. What was applied to a whole range of realities under the old covenant heading of worship, sacrifice, priest, atonement, tabernacle, temple, now has a single point of reference in the Lord Jesus, not in the church. If that is the case, it's not surprising to find that the language of worship we see in the Old Testament is never applied to the New Testament Christian gathering, although I will give you one exception later on. For example, church leaders in the New Testament are not called priests. They don't have their roots there. The the pastor is not sort of rooted back in the priesthood in any way. In fact, pastor just means shepherd. And so if you want to take the the pastor role back into the Old Testament, you'll see it in the, the shepherd kind of idea, King David, that kind of people. Worship of God then is now radically different We don't have a holy place to go to. We have Christ. Because Christ has brought us through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, through his death on the cross, we now live permanently, if we're Christian, in the presence of God. We now worship him, serve him, continually. Worship, as Jack said, is the stuff of everyday life instead of special times and places. And that brings us to the third Implication, therefore, the whole of Christian life is a life of worship. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you're in the temple, you're in the presence of God, you are in fact a priest. And therefore, all of life is sacred and holy. All of life 
is offering worship, conducted in the presence of God. Therefore, if that is true, why would we need to go to a place or time of worship? We have confidence to enter the very presence of God. We are there now with him. When we get up, when we sleep, when we work, every point in time. Have a look at John 4, when Jesus uh, speaks to a Samaritan woman who is concerned about this debate about where, without the kind of temple, where is worship going to happen? The debate that was going on between Jews and Samaritans. Look what Jesus says. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, she says, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of father uh, worshippers my Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, worship cannot be tied to a particular time and place now that God has come in the flesh, in Christ. Now no activity can be separated from the life of worship for God's people. Fourth implication, though, our sin pulls us back to pre-Jesus worship language and thinking. See, I do think it is remarkable that the one place we as Christians tend to use the language the most, church meetings, and especially the bit of church meeting which we sing, is the one place in the New Testament where the language of worship is almost never used. I wonder why that is the case. Well, the letter to the Hebrews might provide a clue. What the letter to the Hebrews is about, you'll remember, is sinful people sliding back to religion. We are habitually and insatiably religious. Remember that one of the reasons this letter was written was because some of the Jewish people who become Christians were finding that the Christian life was very hard. They were being persecuted. The Jewish religion was a legally recognized religion. They could go to the, tab- the, 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 uh, the, the synagogues and they could meet as they used to do. And so the letter of Hebrews is written to Christian Jews who are facing persecution, who were tempted to slide back to that old covenant religion with all its comforts and tangible rituals. See, religion is always a temptation for us because it is something we can do. It is something tangible. And there are many obvious ways in which we can slip back into religion. And one very obvious way is that we turn the church back into the temple. So a few obvious examples. You can see this in the reverence that some people have for church buildings. Putting sanctuary above the, the name of the church building is going back to that Old Testament language. You can see it in the language people use calling church leaders priests calling the communion table the altar. And you can see it most of all, I think, and most close to home, when we have that idea that we draw near to God in some special time of worship, particularly the language of praise and worship, in which the gathering of God's people in church, especially singing, sometimes a particular type of singing, is labelled worship and is boxed off and distinct from the rest of life. Now, I find this is interesting how, it, it, how that language just kind of keeps on sticking to that practice, which is something the New Testament doesn't do. Of course, if you press people, they will acknowledge that, yes, Romans 12, 
all of life is worship. We offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices as a spiritual act of worship. And yet somehow the worship language attaches itself to what we do in church like barnacles to the side of a ship. It is so ingrained in our thinking. Which leads you to ask, why does it all matter over the page? See, hopefully I've uh, convinced you, but why does it matter? Isn't this just about words? Isn't this just about semantics? So, like, you know, people argue about whether tomatoes are vegetables or fruit. It doesn't really matter, does it? But I want to suggest for the last few minutes that it does matter because names and words are important because they not only carry our thinking, but they also shape our thinking as well and thus our actions. And I want to suggest that persisting in this worship kind of language is wrong and has serious consequences. Firstly, it has consequences for the way we think about church. So if church is a worship time, then what it means is our church meetings are basically vertical times, aren't they? They're they're man to God. They're something that we do to offer God something. Every time we speak of church as worship, we implicitly orientate our thinking in that direction. We're giving something to God, whether that something is praise, songs, money, thanks, whatever. We are giving something to God in this kind of vertical direction. Now, when we do that, it is almost inevitable that the next step follows, which is even worse, that the person helping us to do that, the person standing at the front, whether it's the person with a guitar or the person with a microphone, becomes a kind of mediator. And so the worship leader becomes a substitute for Jesus, offering up our worship to God. A second danger, I think, is a retreat into mysticism. Because with an emphasis on this kind of personal, vertical offering up to God, comes an emphasis on emotions, atmosphere, experience. In line with this, music often takes a whole uh, huge profile in generating that feeling. And suddenly the word of God is devalued. I need to feel that I'm worshipping God. And the way I'm going to feel it is by the music. Secondly, it has implications for confidence in the Christian life. See, this emphasis on the worship experience can, can lead to a distortion of how we come to know God. So here's the, uh, the second diagram, which will be familiar to those of you who've done startup. There are four authorities that people uh, tend towards in terms of our experience and relationship with God. There is reason, experience, tradition, and revelation. And generally, those four ways of thinking about authority, you know, where the real kind of truth is to be found, generally, and oversimplifying it a little bit, leads to four kind of church traditions. The reason emphasis leads to liberalism. Uh, the tradition emphasis leads to Catholicism. The experience emphasis leads to charismatic Christianity. And right in the middle is revelation, which leads to evangelical Christianity. And the question is not which is the most important. They all have a place, actually. But where do you go when there is a clash between them? Where is the final authority? 
While most Christians uphold the authority of the Bible, in practice, the other sources of authority can compete for supremacy. It is possible to say that the Bible is the final authority, when in practice, we can begin to see our Christian life our Christian lives more and more in terms of experience. And so you end up with these kind of movements around the authority uh, circle. And we want to bring people back always to Revelation. And as people drift off into this kind of praise and worship experience, they are drifting away from where the authority uh, really is, particularly to experience. Now, that is not to say that experience or reason or tradition play no part in the Christian life. Of course they do, and perhaps over at the meal we, we could discuss what part they play. But as we grasp the gospel, experience is put in its place. Because actually grasping the gospel comes through the word. That is the great experience of actually being born again by the word. But the whole worship and praise kind of um, ethos is always pulling us back away from the word to experience. Did I mention the Hillsong uh, um, documentary a couple of weeks ago? It was, it was really interesting to watch, but they missed the point completely. They were trying to find all these kind of things to accuse Hillsong of, but they missed the point of the problem with Hillsong. There might be all sorts of abuses happening, I don't know, but the, the point of the problem with Hillsong is this, that the great sort of uh, fantastic, expensive, elaborate um, visual effects experience is actually offering people a substitute experience from the word. That's the real problem with it. And if that's the case, a third implication follows, which is ultimately we will mistake how we relate to God. The Bible teaches us that we come to know God through the cross of Christ. The death of Jesus is the only grounds for salvation. This is how we're forgiven. This is how we know we are right with God. This is how we come into the presence of God by trusting in the cross of Christ. As the author to the Hebrews puts it, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by, finish it off in your own head, not by the vibe of the incredible electric guitars, by the blood of Jesus. There's a world of difference between those things, isn't there? You see why this matters. We have confidence to enter the most holy place, not by walking into a special building, by the blood of Jesus. We become worshippers of God on the grounds of, by the blood of Jesus. But we can begin to confuse Christian experience with that salvation. We can begin to think that when we have certain experiences, we are getting more deeply into God's presence. And when we try and replicate those experiences through techniques in church meetings, we're actually in danger of offering people a different gospel. And this is true of worship. People use phrases like God showing up, God being in the house, basking in his glory, experiencing the touch of God. All of these are wrong phrases to use about a worship, a music experience. Now, this is a trajectory I'm talking about. No charismatic Christian I know would consciously say that they are substituting the death of Jesus for music. But over time, slowly but surely, what matters is where your confidence is. Integrity Music, for example, is the largest praise and worship company in the world. 
Its mission statement is, and I quote, helping people worldwide experience the manifest presence of God. Well, I think that is a really dangerous mistake for a music company to make. Helping people experience the manifest presence of God. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is the one true worship leader who we need. Only he, in his death on the cross, in the gospel, can help us experience the presence of God. So it's really offering an alternative way to God. That's why it matters. Well, in that case, what is the better model? I've spent a lot of time trying to sort of sort out this unbiblical model. What is the better model? Well, we've seen it's the gathering. Gathered in heaven, gathered on earth. And I think that leads us to three dimensions. Here's another diagram. Firstly, the word of God, or God, comes to us in his word. When Israel gathered at Sinai before the temple was built, that was how they experienced God. He came to them in his word. And that is the pattern for the New Testament church. Remember in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In Colossians 3, the word of God is to dwell in them richly through wise teaching. Hearing the word is fundamental to Christians meeting together. This is what forms the church. This is what gathers the church. And of course, there will be a response, two responses, in fact. One, the vertical response back to God through prayer and praise. We cannot hear the word of God without responding. But we're not giving God something as if he needed something. We're responding to his word through prayer and praise. And then the other response is the horizontal response. So if you go to Hillsong and you hear the music and you get all, all the, the emotions rising, you can do all of this on your own. It's your own little private experience. But if you're hearing the gospel and you're praising God in your heart, then there is a horizontal response as well as you actually look into the eyes of your church family and sing those praises alongside them, where you encourage them, where you notice the barriers that have been broken down by the gospel. Remember, we are a gathering. We're not individuals meeting in this special holy place to have our own little private time of experience with God. We are a church family. And so those three uh, arrows are what cat uh, uh, comprises the Christian gathering. Well, let's end then with thinking what is music for in that case. If I've sort of destroyed the kind of worship idea, then what is music for in church? Well, music, when it's put into that praise and worship uh, category, is reduced, it is reduced, and worship is reduced at the same time. And so what I want to do to end is just to kind of elevate music to its proper place. Have a look at the three passages on the sheet. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Can you see how all three dimensions are there? As we sing good songs, songs that are biblical, the word of God is being implanted in us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you as you sing. You see that? That's why it matters what we sing. That's why it matters that there are good songwriters writing 
songs for sort of contemporary people. That's why it really matters that we choose songs carefully because as we sing them, we're thinking about the words and God is implanting them in us. Nothing magic or mystical, it's just that we're saying the words and we're thinking about them. But then notice that the other dimension is there as well. We are, as we sing, doing so with gratitude in our hearts to God. So the music is giving us words to express thankfulness to God. There is a, an experiential dimension here. We're not losing that dimension. But notice perhaps the biggest surprise is that as we sing Colossians 3.16, we're admonishing each other. We are teaching each other with those same words. This is a corporate thing. And you can see it in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Or Colossians 14, 26. What shall we say then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So take one of those elements away, and we're missing the point of music. But when all three are there, then singing will be brilliant. Not because the singing is the focus or the experience, but because we're singing to God and to each other, and God is speaking to us the word of the cross, the gospel, the ground of our salvation. So I think we're going to do that uh, in a moment, but I'll uh, just pray and then I'll hand over to, uh, to Jack. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he is our one true worshipper, our worship leader, our temple, priest, sacrifice. Thank you that in him all the shadows of the Old Testament have been completely fulfilled and finished so that in him now we can lead a whole life of worship. Thank you, too, that in church we get the privilege of singing to encourage each other, and speaking your word to each other, uh, so we might be built up, and you might indeed be thanked and praised. We pray that you'd help us to remember this and to love it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so we're going to sing and do that um, now. So this song...